So um, I'm going to start this uh, Thanksgiving Day message by telling you uh, a time that I wasn't very thankful, I wasn't very grateful. If you've known me for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story before. Um, but uh, it, it, it was uh, when Wendy and I were in Trinidad, and uh, we had just started our dating relationship. And uh, so this is like nearly 20 years ago. Uh, it, was, it was a while off, um, or it was a while ago. And we were stood there off the beaten track, and uh, we were, how do you say it in church on a Sunday? We were sharing a tender moment together in some, yeah, in a pathway there on the island of Trinidad. Um, okay, we're in church. We were praying together uh, on the island of Trinidad, and then all of a sudden, Wendy stops praying because she feels a gun poked in her back. And of course, any, any prayer session, that would stop straight away if you have a gun in your back. And, uh, and, there were, and what then happened over the next little while uh, is that these three teenage lads, I think it was three or maybe four, that they relieved us of our possessions, uh, which wasn't very much because we were missionaries. But I remember this incident very well, and I remember freezing. I remember physically not being able to move. Um, and what happens, uh, you know, that I've learned since is that when we're exposed to threat or to trauma uh, or to fear, we respond in various ways. You know, we can, uh, we can um, you know, there's fight, there's flight, and there's freezing. And fight is clear that you respond to threat with force. Now, that's usually what happens with me and Ariana. If I'm chasing her, she will turn and she will fight. And I'm reaching that point where I can't really do that anymore because it's probably 50-50 who uh, wins. Uh, but then uh, Maya is actually more of the flight, so she will just run as fast as she can out of there. Um, actually, but also Maya has this freeze thing that she just drops and sits. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. But... That, and that's not actual fear, right? That's just a dad chasing his girls and trying to tickle them, right? But, uh, but psychologists actually say that, there, that there's a fourth response to fear, and it's called fawn, F-A-W-N. And fawn means that you uh, respond in compliance, So, uh, which, which means that when you're faced with fear, that person who show, who's, who's kind of bringing up that fear response in you, you respond by doing what they say. You know, it's a bit like a dog who fawns over its master, right? Um, yes, Alpha, what do you want, Alpha? Anything you say, Alpha, right? That's kind of fawning. And I still remember when faced with that threat, with that fear, my response, our response actually was to freeze. We, we froze. And then we fawned. We did what they asked we complied. Uh, we gave them the watch that Wendy was wearing and maybe, you know, a couple of the dollars that we had in our pocket. In fact, all of the dollars that we had in our pocket. We were missionaries. We didn't have a lot. And what I realized at that moment in time is that you don't know how you're going to respond until you're in the moment. Um, I would like to think that I was a fighter, that I would fight off, I'd fend off my girlfriend's attackers but that's not what happened. I froze and I fawned. 
And I wonder what your instinctive response to threat is. Is it, is it, is, is it uh, to fight? Is it flight? Is it um, freezing? Or is it fawning? Now, we know from Scripture that actually Simon Peter is a very interesting um, insight into these responses because uh, his response to threat is all over the map. Right? When the soldiers tried to take Jesus, what did Simon Peter do? He drew his sword, he flailed around, and he cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Uh, so that was fight. But then later, uh, someone asked him if he knew Jesus, and he lied. He said, no, I don't, over and over and over again. That's kind of like flight. Uh, so as we're continuing through the book of Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, and as I'm reading, I want to... I want you to ask yourself, what is Peter or Cephas's response to threat going to be this time? Is it fight? Is it flight? Is it freezing or is it fawning? Fight, flight, freeze or thorn. Let's read Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So here we see Peter, Cephas, um, experiencing fear and his response to fear, I'm not sure if you uh, saw this, but his response to fear is fawning, is to fawn. He, he gives in, he courts favor with those, um, who are, who are, who are threatening him. Um, he's, he's, in a sense, he's negotiating with spiritual terrorists at this moment out of fear. Now, this is a really big deal. This is a, this is a huge issue. But having said that, having said that it's a big deal, I don't think that we should necessarily give Cephas or Peter too much of a of a hard go um, because like I said already he's instinctively responding to threat um, now kidshealth.org uh, helps us understand what happens on a physiological level when we experience threat when we experience fear and um, here's here here's what kidshealth.org says it says in in order to, provi- to prepare for fight or flight, your body does a number of things automatically so it's ready for quick action or a quick escape. Your heart rate increases to pump more blood to your muscles and brain. Your lungs take an air faster to supply your, your body with oxygen. The pupils in your eyes get larger to see better and your digestive and urinary systems slow down for the moment so you can concentrate on more important things. Okay? So... So, so Peter's physiological response to this threat, his physical response was actually real. It was a real thing. Uh, it says that he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So this was a fear of, of humans. It was a fear of probably persecution. It was a real fear. And so I want us to realize this, is that even though Paul had to address Peter's um, his, his hypocrisy, his failure, in very strong terms, we also need to ask ourselves, how would we have responded if we were in Peter's group under the threat of the circumcision group, this kind of um, you know, Jewish, maybe terrorist group? 
Now, the sad thing is that Peter had just been part of the Jerusalem Council, which we heard about last week, where Paul presented his message of the gospel, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? And, and Simon Peter was the one that we also heard about last week, who in Acts 15 made this massive statement that circumcision for the Gentiles was no longer needed. And now we have Peter up in Antioch, acting like a hypocrite. Now, if, if we were to look back in Simon Peter's history, um, we shouldn't be too surprised at this flip-flop, because Simon Peter actually is a bit of a flip-flopper. He's a bit of a serial flip-flopper. He flip-flops over and over again, often in spectacular ways. For example, uh, he walked on water. Amazing. And then he sank from lack of faith, flip-flop. He said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus Christ high-fives him only seconds later for Jesus to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man, flip-flop. Simon Peter said to Jesus, I will never disown you, only to say hours later, I never knew him, with probably swearing thrown in flip-flop. And now we have Simon Peter Cephas saying that Jews and Gentiles are the same in Christ. He's sharing meals with them, but then refusing to eat with them when the Jews from Jerusalem are around because of the threat of persecution from the circumcision group. And this is a massive, massive flip-flop on epic proportions. So here's a little side note for all of you sat here that uh, you should be very careful about putting your confidence in human personalities rather than in the truth of Jesus as revealed in the scripture. No one had a bigger personality than Simon Peter, and yet Paul said he stood condemned. And, and actually, because of Peter's hypocrisy, other Jews were drawn in, and they were led astray, and, and, and once it re reached that kind of, you know, that kind of crowd mob mentality, once it reached that, 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 that mass, then even Barnabas was led astray. And no one would imagine that Barnabas, you know, you know the son of prophecy or the son of encouragement, would be led astray. So Simon Peter's freezing and fawning caused others to be brought down with him. And so leaders will let you down. And I'm listening to a podcast at the moment called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I don't know if you remember Mars Hill Church and Mark, Mark, Mark Driscoll. Um, but it makes it very clear that we should never place our ultimate trust in a human personality, no matter how anointed they appear and so think of all the christian leaders with their moral failures or leaders or influencers who have deconstructed their faith to the point that their faith no longer really exists friends the only one who's worthy of your ultimate confidence is jesus christ one of my uh, favorite things to witness as i'm walking around in nature is this thing called mobbing um so what happens is, uh, in fact, I, I have my little uh, helpers here. So what happens is that, say there's a big bird that flies into the territory of a little bird, 
Okay, he's super scary, massive, like intimidating. But what happens is that if this big bird that's usually slow and not very maneuverable flies into the little bird's territory, well, this little bird, with all its little bird friends, will actually fly up and they will mob this larger bird like like this, over and over again. And it's not just one, it's two, it's three, it's four, it's five. And they just do this until this large bird goes, I've had enough of this, and they fly away, and this, and this little bird is safe again with its nest or with its food source. Okay, these are my little Welsh dragons. Okay, I didn't have a bird. But I'm sure in the dragon land it's the same principle. And, uh, and so that's called mobbing. And fear is like this big bird of prey, right? It looks scary. It looks intimidating. And, it's, and, and fear so often leads to us compromising our faith to, 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 to kind of let go of what we know to be true. And so we uh, flip-flop to hypocrisy because we're intimidated. It's our stress response. And I, I think for us, who are Christians, who are Jesus followers, it's easy to feel intimidated. It's easy to feel afraid. Uh, and I wonder what it is for you. What is it that, that you, feel, with, that you feel, feel filled with fear that if this happens, you're not sure if you would stand strong? You're not sure if you would hold on to your faith. You're not sure if you would be brave or not. What would cause you to compromise this freedom of grace that you have in Jesus Christ? I think, you know, for many of us, it's easy to feel that we're kind of on the losing side of the cultural, um, you know, you know, the cultural landscape at the moment. Uh, you know, because what, what happens is that, you know, the truth of the gospel is like this rock that has never moved. You know, for 2,000 years, it's, it's, it's strong and it won't move, but then, you know, around it is this kind of stream, this river, you know, uh, and the stream represents, you know, the culture, and it changes, and it ebbs, and it flows, and so we're not sure how to respond to this moving culture around us, and when we see that our worldview is at odds with the worldview of the culture around us, it's easy to be drawn in, just like the Jews in Antioch. And they were drawn in by Simon Peter, and then eventually uh, Barnabas was drawn in. But just like these smaller birds joining with each other and mobbing this larger bird, what we see in Galatians chapter 2 verse 5 is that there are five things that we can uh, mob our fear with. There are five weapons that we have at our disposal, and they're powerful, each of these are game changers, especially when they join forces. And these five things that, that we see in Galatians 2 are truth and faith and justification and grace and life. So the first bird to mob fear with is truth. Let's read verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish Jewish customs? So, you know, just like Paul, we mob fear with truth. Everyone say truth. Paul did not back down from Peter's fearful response. Instead, he confronted Peter's fear with truth. 
And, and, and Paul was so bold because he knew what was at stake. You know, if you think about the situation from the perspective of the Gentiles up in Antioch, one week you're invited over to Peter's house for a meal and then some folks come from out of, some folks come from out of town and suddenly he's absolutely ghosting you. You don't exist. He's not answering your calls. Nothing. How would that make you feel? And so Paul said that when Peter was eating with, the Gent- eating with the Gentiles, he was living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Which means that Simon Peter at that moment knew that the truth of the gospel transcended um, our cultural differences. But then when the circumcision folks were kind of watching him, hovering over him, he was forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. In other words... Simon Peter was forcing uh, the Gentiles to observe this Jewish custom of racial separateness that the Jews had observed since the Old Testament times. He was, he was forcing them out of the gospel. He was, he was moving them out of the house. Simon Peter flip-flopped. It might actually be that Simon Peter's motives were good. After all, he was the apostle to the Jews, as chapter 1 verse 8 says. Uh, Let's us know. So maybe Simon Peter's priority was to maintain good relationships with the Jews at the expense of the Gentiles. But if that's true, it's still pretty messed up. Warren Wiersbe actually says this, that Peter pretended his actions were motivated by faithfulness when they were really motivated by fear. I wonder how many of us have actually done that, you know, that we've used you know, the word of God to say, well, what I'm doing is noble, but really there's no nobility in it at all. It's just fear. How easy it is, Warren Wiersbe says, to use Bible doctrine to cover up our disobedience. Friends, the way that we fight fear is to mob it with truth. And what was the truth that Simon Peter needed to hear? That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. So I wonder in, in, in your life right now, what scripture is it that you need to be meditating on to mob the fear out of your territory? What is that verse that you need to be holding on to right now? Because you fight fear with truth. But you also fight fear with faith. Verse 15. We who, are gen- we who are Jews by birth and not sinful. You know, you should have a quote unquote there. Uh, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul says to us, as he, um, as he said you know, to Peter and the Galatian church, um, that, that we are not justified by works of the law, but we're justified by faith. And we're not just justified by faith, but we're justified by faith in someone. And that person that we're justified by faith in is Christ. So Simon... Mr. Simon Gathercall explains what these works of the law are. He says that it doesn't mean only circumcision or food laws and Sabbath, but any human effort for us to be justified by God by obeying a moral law. Okay, that's what the works of the law are. Any human effort for us to be justified by God. And that really 
is the story of humanity. That's the story of me and you, right? Is us trying our best, trying to earn ourselves into God's good books. And so Paul says, and so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will, will be justified. And so we fight fear with the truth of Jesus, and we fight fear by mobbing it with the faith of Jesus. And now we fight fear by mobbing it with the justification of Jesus. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, well, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Okay, I had to read these two verses over and over and over again just to try to get the sense of what what Paul is saying. But I think it goes something like this. Let's say that in my house, I have an infestation of rats in the basement. Okay? And I can't catch them all. And I wouldn't want to... I'm fine catching a mouse in a little mouse trap, but the idea of, you know, willingly killing anything larger than a mouse just kind of makes me um, sick, which is why I will never fit into North Gore wholly because I just can't do that stuff. I just can't shoot stuff and trap it and drown it and whatever. That's just not me. So I'm not going to deal with the rats by myself. But what I do instead is I hire a professional, and he comes with his traps and poisons and his van and whatever, and my neighbor comes by and says, you couldn't take care of the rats by yourself? What a loser. That actually means... That, uh, that actually means, if you can take care of the rats by yourself, that actually means that the rats are still there. You still have rats. But that's logically insane, right? Because surely the fact that I didn't get rid of the rats myself, surely that doesn't mean that I still have rats in the basement. In fact, the only reason I'm rat-free is because I didn't do it myself is because I outsourced it to someone else because I hired a professional. And my best efforts can't get rid of the rats, and my obeying the law cannot get rid of sin. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can take care of my sin, and he's the only licensed professional in the whole of the universe who's equipped, you know, to do this. And so when Jesus gets sin out of the basement of my life. God looks at me and he declares me rat free. He declares me, you know, free of sin, free of the power of sin. He declares, he declares me justified just as if I'd never sinned. Sin is no longer lurking in my basement. But then even after salvation, the odd rat can come back into the basement. And when that happens, we can be tempted, you know, to get rid of that little rat ourselves because we're afraid of people seeing the Jesus sin removal van outside our house again, right? There's, you know, you know, there's Pastor Dan sitting among the sinners once again. Okay, and that fear can be, is real. But, but if Jesus takes care of my sin, if he deals with my sin, which means I have to admit I'm a sinner, does that mean that Jesus promotes sin? And the answer is, of course not. And so the only way that we can fight this fear 
is to look at what Jesus has done for me in the past by getting rid of sin out of the basement and continues to do as he keeps getting sin out of the basement. So you mob fear with the truth of Jesus, with faith in Jesus, with justification from Jesus. And fourthly, you mob fear out of your territory with the grace of God. You mob fear with grace Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Listen to Paul's language here. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Now, I don't have a lot of tools. I keep mentioning that. Obviously, it's a big issue that I have. I'm, I'm a generally toolless kind of a guy. Um, but I do have some, and my tools used to be everywhere. Okay. There's not many, but they weren't handily in one place. And so I had, you know, the drill over there and my manly hammer over here. And uh, it was, it just, it was Wendy's drill. And there were some in the garage and there were some in the house just all over. And so when I needed to have the right tool at hand, I didn't have it, which made me less motivated than I already was to fix stuff. Okay, but... A couple of weeks ago, what I did is I actually reorganized all of my tools. Everything in its right place and a right place for everything. And so here's the reality now is that I'm much more likely to screw in that screw that needs to be screwed uh, or to drill that hole than I was earlier. Why? Because I have the tools that I need to hand at hand. I haven't set them aside. And Paul's, Paul here is saying it's so easy. It's so easy for us to set aside the grace of God. You know, to put it somewhere and to forget where you left it. But we shouldn't do that. We should have the grace of God at hand, ready to use whenever we need it. Because God's grace, this truth that he loves us because of Jesus and not because of our good works, is the most important tool of the lot. Because when we have have the grace of God, the right tool to hand, We are much more likely to use it, and we're much less likely to resort to using the law, um, which is the wrong tool. You know, I can try to knock in a nail with a piece of sandpaper, but it'll probably end up in a bit of a bloody mess. And it's the same here when we use the law, which is the wrong tool, rather than grace, which is the right tool. We end up being hurt. In, uh, In Paul's day, this young Galatian church was kind of caught between uh, the religion of the Roman Empire and the legalism of the circumcision party, uh, you know, and the paganism of the local religions. And uh, because the Christians were in a minority, it was easy to become afraid, you know, and to give way to whatever voice sounded the most intimidating. And today, here in Canada, it's not that. It's kind of like the same. Right, we're we're caught in between this worldview of secular humanism and the philosophy of materialism and uh, and the religious fervor of maybe pluralism that always are are fine and new age spirituality. Just like the early church, we find ourselves in the minority, and it's easy to fall prey to fear as their big shadows pass over us. It's easy to think, well, we we must be wrong. Or it's easy to think, well, to live a quiet life, I must go with the flow. But this fear leads us 
into compromise, and compromise leads us into hypocrisy, and hypocrisy leads, leads our friends astray. And when enough people fall prey to the fear of the prevailing worldview, then even the strongest among us, even the Barnabas, Barnabases among us can be led astray. And that's why Paul gets so mad at Simon Peter here. And that's why now more than ever, we must choose to respond to fear, not by freezing uh, or fleeing or by fawning, but instead we need to respond to fear by fighting. Not fighting people, but fighting our own wrong thinking. And so friends, we mob fear out of our territory with the truth of Jesus and with our faith in Jesus, with the justification of Jesus and with the grace of God. Truth, faith, justification and grace. Now, maybe you notice that there's one I haven't mentioned. I said that there were five. Well, I've left the best for last because we mob fear out of the territory of our minds with the life of Jesus. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a verse. That the life of Jesus is living in us. And friends, this truth is the the most amazing and liberating truth of all. That if we're in Jesus, then we died to the law. that, That we no longer live. And that Christ then made us alive in him. And we're resurrected in him. We are, we are living once again. And in him we uh, start this whole new life of truth, of faith, of justification, of grace, and of life. That I have been crucified with Christ. That I no longer live. That you no longer live. That I no longer live. But Christ lives in me and Christ lives in you and even though I no longer live the life that I do live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And who is this Son of God? Well, he's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And why would I want to trade that in? That truth and that faith and that justification and that grace and that life for something so feeble and fleeting and temporary as being afraid of what other people think of me. So let's mob that fear and let's get it out of our territory because it has no place here.